Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Republicans denounced President Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan as a left-wing Christmas tree of goodies. Remember this gem a couple of weeks ago from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy? Unfortunately, this bill is too costly, too corrupt, and too liberal. Only 9% goes to COVID. We watched the swamp come back to Washington. $100 million for a tunnel in Silicon Valley just outside of Speaker Pelosi's district. Or a bridge for Schumer. Our money for schools, the two-thirds of it cannot be spent until 2023. Okay. This is the wrong path, and this is not what President Biden said he would do at the inaugural. Okay, so I say we own this. I wouldn't exactly use their language, but I'd say that this is one of the most progressive pieces of economic legislation in our modern history. Seriously. And when I say we need to own this, Republicans attacks and all, all of those attacks that they're meaning, they're, they're, they're throwing at us. I mean, we as progressives should embrace, explain, and defend this legislation until the Republicans come crawling back, pleading with us to share in the credit. Some of them are already campaigning on it, despite the fact that they voted against it. They've tweeted out what's in the package. Make no mistake, voters will be handing out credit for this legislation the way this legislation hands out $1,400 checks. Not enough. <laughs> Americans deserve those checks, and Democrats deserve the credit. Uh, so it will be very important to be able to explain what's in this bill and to defend it from the slander of Kevin McCarthy and his cronies uh, who don't want to spend money on schools and on broken bridges. The $1,400 checks are, of course, the best known part. There was a lot of debate about how many people would get these checks and exactly how big they should be. Where did we end up? You know how economists love to divide the population into fifths, quintiles. Just thinking about it gives me shudders of Thomas Piketty. But under this legislation, every single American in the bottom three-fifths of the economy gets a check. That is the middle and, and two lowest, lowest quintiles. Everyone is looked after. This is radically different from the way that government help has been distributed in the past. Breathtaking, really. Instead of looking after the rich in the belief that this will somehow magically trickle down and do things that help all of us, uh, this legislation focuses on helping the poor and middle, simply and elegantly, and I might say even swiftly. In fact, one of the biggest challenges ahead is that poor people are eligible for these checks, but aren't always easy to find because data shows many don't fill out income tax returns. Really surprising, actually. And that is a problem. It's a good problem to have to be able to not be able to, you know, to have to be able to support poor people, but we have to fix these systems. I don't, I don't really recall anyone ever worrying about whether corporate tax breaks would find their way to corporations. But related, this bill also includes direct aid to children in low-income families. If we make this permanent, we'll be a sea change in reducing poverty in America. And there is a lot else in this bill. For one, it, in, it is correct. One of the, the big mistakes after the 2009 stimulus crash was Obama adopted a stimulus plan. Too little. Everyone now recognizes that stimulus plan was way too small. But in addition, a hunk of the benefit of the federal spending that was approved was washed away by government cutbacks in states and cities. Janet Yellen, she's one of the people who called this out. This bill helps avoid that by sending $350 billion to states, localities, and tribal governments. This is 
by the way, one of the largest aid programs to tribal governments in history. It's not reparations, but it is absolutely long overdue help. McCarthy is correct that direct spending on the pandemic is smaller than the spending to repair the economic carnage caused by the pandemic. And I'm good with that. But there's a lot of money in this bill to strengthen vaccinations, improve contact tracing, and make sure that we get the medical part behind us. There is also some $15 billion for something I'd like to see even more spent on in the future, proactive and preventative community health care. This will help prevent the next pandemic from killing people disproportionately by race, ethnicity, and income. That is an investment in a better future. And it's also, might I say, perhaps a little bit of a pathway into Medicare for all. And we need more of that. And after President Biden, which he just did, signs this American Rescue Plan, we are in the middle of Biden's first 100 days. So, as my friend Walker Bragman stated, the kids are still in cages. Might be a little bit more reformed, but they're still in cages. The $2,000, but now $1,400 checks, they still haven't got out. No student debt has been canceled, none whatsoever. And US is still partnered with Saudi Arabia as it wages genocidal war, war in Yemen. And the minimum wage, of course, is still federally $7.25 an hour. Not to mention, we haven't had big debates over Medicare for all, college for all, and the Green New Deal. We have a lot of work to do. It's deeply troubling the specific allegation that the governor called an employee of his, someone who he had power over, called them to a private place, and then sexually assaulted her is absolutely unacceptable. It is disgusting to me. And he can no longer serve as governor. It's as simple as that. It's deep. All right, well, uh, a little bit of a change here. We're gonna talk about Cuomo for a minute because there's a lot of developments happening. That was Mayor de Blasio of New York. Uh, no no pal of Cuomo. Uh, they're, they're like nemeses. They're um, just some backstory there if, you, if you're not aware of that. Uh, he's calling on Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, to resign based on the most recent allegation. Um, and just breaking as of uh, literally five minutes ago, uh, the New York Times is reporting that the latest accuser, the seventh accuser, uh, is latest accusation against Cuomo is reported to Albany police. And I'm quoting the New York Times right now, Albany police uh, department officials said on Thursday that they had been notified by the New York State Police and the governor's office about an alleged incident at the executive man mansion involving Governor Cuomo and a female aide that may have risen to the level of crime, which uh, I believe has to do with forcible touching, um, forced touching. It was Albany police officials said they heard from the state police on Wednesday night after the publication of an article in the Times Union of Albany that detailed accusations leveled by an unidentified aide to the governor who accused Mr. Uh, Cuomo of groping her at the governor's mansion where he lives last year. Um, you know, this is multidimensional. So I, I want to be as clear headed as possible about this because there is real malfeasance with the nursing home scandal in the fact that they covered up the act what they knew deemed to be the accurate number of deaths or the most accurate number of deaths uh, that happened at nursing home and elder care, elder care facilities in New York State, possibly, possibly influenced by hospitals um, who are pushing because they wanted to remove the COVID patients and put them somewhere else because they were over overbooked. Um, 
you know, but there was an actual cover up there. And that's, I think, which the crime isn't as as bad as the cover up is, because, you know, you think back New York through covid uh, the beginning how these these hospitals were overrun um they had they, they didn't have enough support and it was confusion and chaos so you know if the number of deaths had been reported accurately it would have been an extraordinary tragedy and governor cuomo would have had to deal with it it wouldn't have looked good but now it shows that he was perfectly conscious of it and more concerned with his political ratings or whatever else uh or possibly his some lobbyists that have uh, supported him in the past. We don't know for sure. There's an investigation underway, uh, two investigations underway, actually multiple. I mean, we now know that um, the feds are looking into it as well, but uh, that has to do with a cover-up, right? These are now seven women who have come forward at a moment where, you know, these are primarily, with exception to I think one person, yes, uh, primarily all people who've worked under Governor Cuomo in his office, in the administration. So it's not just that he has these allegations against him, and many of them are fairly recent. Um, it's that these are all people who worked for him. And if you know anything about Cuomo, Cuomo's administration, uh, big part of this is about loyalty. He, he has a circle around him. Uh, he uses fear tactics to keep people loyal to him. Uh, and and as a result, you know he's been fairly protected, the, the Albany, the Albany press isn't always the toughest on him. Uh, neither is the New York City press, which has been extremely weakened. Um, they report on the day to day, you know, and, and big stories have happened where they have reported on them, uh, like the corruption scandal involving the Buffalo Billion, which ended up leaving his his closest aide in prison um, and uh, a large donor as well. So, you know, but this is all part of the New York ecosystem for folks who aren't aware. And, and I didn't really touch on this too much yesterday when we did our Cuomo story um, in the last decade, in the last decade alone, you have seen the longtime speaker of the assembly. Uh, I believe he's sentenced at this point. I know he's been back and forth legally. Uh, Shelley Silver for, for corruption, for pay to play. Uh, the former speaker of of the Senate, uh, Dean Scalos, the leader of the Senate. Um, is now in jail. Malcolm Smith, former Senate leader, in jail, Democrat. Uh, Scalos is Republican. Um, you have uh, the previous controllers, this is like a little bit over a decade ago, Alan Havasey uh, in jail. Uh, I mean, this is, and not to mention uh, the governors that have, have cycled through, whether it's Spitzer having to step down. And then, I mean, it's just, it's it's been, <laughs> and then there are pl plenty of other senators as well that have, have ended up in a lot of trouble, uh, whether in jail or had to pay fines or had to step down. Um, this is the culture of Albany. It's always been very protected. And you have these leaders there for a long time using fear, using power mechanisms to prevent uh, deep analysis and reporting and accountability. Uh, and now I, I think because of those, because of that movement is paved a way for a progressive movement, which is demanded, uh, which is challenged really bad actors like the IDC that the Democrats were caucusing with the Republicans in New York that was uh, devised by Andrew Cuomo. But they have um, the progressive movement that has challenged them and has gotten elected, has been able to put more pressure on Cuomo in a way that maybe if this had happened six, seven, eight years ago, when 
the other players were still in control. There would have been some sort of power deal. You know, we won't touch it if you don't touch our stuff. And that that's politics. In fact, that's actually how Andrew Cuomo seems he's trying to get out of this. He's trying to basically use the budget, it seems, because they're in budget. This is budget time in, in Albany. Um, he's trying to use the budget as leverage for them not to go after him or call for him to resign. But as of right now, I'm, I'm looking at the latest. <clears throat> I believe there's... How many people have now said that that he should resign? I think we have a, a tweet by Akela Lacey, uh, who's a reporter at The Intercept who comes on our show regularly. There are 55 New York State legislators that have called on Governor Cuomo to resign. Um, that includes the the, the leaders of uh, the Senate, Andrea Stewart-Cousins and Carl Hastie, who's the assembly leader, uh, speaker. So this is um, Dick Gottfried, who's, who is a, a senator. He is the longest serving lawmaker in New York State. Um, this is no joke. This is not just progressives. There are plenty of names on that list. If we scroll down, who uh, campaigned with Governor Cuomo, who Andrew Gennardis was endorsed by Governor Cuomo, um, James Scoofus, uh, slow down just a little bit, uh, you know, Rachel May, she's upstate. She challenged the IDC. John Liu challenged the IDC. Robert Jackson, as uh, progressive, Michael Gennaris is the deputy leader of the state Senate. Um, so there are quite a few progressives, but there are some people on this list that are Nelly Rozick, um, who, you know, are more in the center and some have been endorsed by Governor Cuomo in the past. And uh, I mean, this is, this is a big deal. This is a sea change. And so what's going to happen is, you know, if he has to step down, we don't know if he will. I think, I think, my guess is, is that the political pressure is growing so much that um, you may see somebody like a Hillary Clinton speak up and uh, you may, may start with, with Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator, and then go to Hillary Clinton um, and then possibly Senator Schumer. And then the last shoe to drop will be President Biden. If it gets to that circle, that's where I think Andrew Cuomo's budget game, which I didn't finish that, uh, will well, that strategy will not work. So what he's trying to do right now is use the power of the purse strings and say, you know, we'll pass a billionaire's tax, which is something progressive movement has been pushing for uh, if you lay off me, but they're not laying off. More names are coming out. And maybe that's because they think Kathy Hochul, uh, who, who is the Lieutenant governor might pass the billionaire's tax. I mean, this is also really complicated because if he does step down, uh, he has to step down in the middle of a budget negotiation process. I don't know how that works. Um, if he's impeached, which Carl Hasty and the assembly has already said that they're putting together the plans for that, organizing what that would look like. I believe there's only been one impeachment in New York history um, of a governor. It's not looking good for Governor Cuomo right now. He is up against the wall and, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why you don't make a lot of enemies. <laughs> Power only works so far, right? Um, so it, it's hubris. I mean, there's just so much here. And 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 just a little more backstory for folks to know. So he has been, um, who's in a relationship with Sandra Lee, who is the famous uh, TV chef, TV, uh, I don't know if she's a chef, she, you know, her shows. So they broke up about a year ago, I believe, or maybe a little bit over a year ago. And they were not married. Um, and, you know, so this 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 is all kind of happening like, possibly post Sandra Lee, uh, you know, who knows what, what's going on in his head right now, but it's, it's inappropriate behavior. Um, if it does get physical, then this could be criminal 
if it, if it was indeed with this investigation uh, and what the woman has said. And the other thing that's interesting about this is that all of these staffers, from what I understand, is all of the staffers have come forward and said that they went through like essentially superiors. They, they complained, they went to HR, they went to, they, they moved forward on all of these allegations, went through the process that you're supposed to go through and they were ignored. Even senior staffers, very well known, Karen Hinton uh, has said that she uh, was treated inappropriately and nothing happened. There were no consequences. This is what happens when you have leaders that are not held accountable externally and internally when you have toxic work environments, which is they're notorious for, uh, when you use the politics of fear rather than the politics of, of compassion, understanding, coalitions, ally, allyship, um, this is essentially a product of the old school New York political machine, a lot of the bad habits that really have not died out. And, and you know, and I'm going to be as bold to even say, um, we have it on the progressive side too, you know, the political machine, there were a lot of bad things about, as we talked about on the show before, Tammany Hall uh, used really bad tactics that carried on through uh, and still to this day are still carried out in some ways if it's legal. But, you know, they were there to help immigrants. They were there to fight the oligarchs of the time. Uh, they were a little bit rougher about it. It doesn't mean that the oligarchs weren't stealing money, um, weren't doing bad things too. It was just it just operated differently. And uh, you know, as Ron Chowdhury, who's going to come on the show right now, uh, has said, you know, it's 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 bad when Tammany Hall did it, but not bad when the oligarchs did it. But with that being said, when Tammany Hall fell apart eventually uh, after second iteration in the '60s, you know, a lot of these tactics remain. Shelley Silver, who was the Assembly Speaker, was kind of like the you know came up towards the end of Tammany Hall, like his mentors were in Tammany Hall. And so that culture remained, that legacy remained in Albany. Of course, Andrew Cuomo <laughs> was a product of his father's uh, political machine. And, and even if they did operate differently. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, we have to be very conscious that even if these people go away, sometimes the infrastructure or the culture still exists. And it's wonderful that we're getting more progressives elected, but we also have to look at the institutions. There are a lot of institutions in New York that still operate in an old school fear mechanic. Like, like it's, it's, it's still dirty. It's still dirty. There's a lot of backroom dealing. There's a lot of, of, of um, horse trading. I mean, people have asked me to talk about the mayoral race and, and ranked choice voting. And I say, you know, there are a lot of really amazing candidates in that race. Um, I'm not sure all of them are even aware that they're being backed uh, really to, to, to boost another candidate because ranked choice voting is really complicated. We'll see how it plays out. A really complicated situation. Um, it's the first ranked choice voting a citywide election uh, that New York has ever seen. And that happens at the end of June. So we're going to keep watching this. Uh, we are, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting components to this that we haven't even touched on yet. And I honestly, I don't think this would have happened if the IDC had not been defeated. So um, the IDC, again, were the eight Democrats that were ousted in 2018. And if we did not have more progressives in the Senate, if we did not have Democratic leadership in the Senate willing to step up and speak out, uh, meaning Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins and Deputy Leader uh, Michael Janaris, if we didn't have that 
that that that that ground um that groundswell of of progressive senators then the other senators wouldn't have come forward and then that's how the political pressure is applied to people like senator gillibrand and senator schumer um that's how the political pressure is applied to people like hillary clinton which you know is still important and uh, and cuomo's very close and of course uh joe biden all right so we're going to talk more about this because it's not going away and it's a big story it's huge it's huge 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 story huge story uh now if he has to step down it will be kathy hochul the lieutenant governor who's a former congresswoman from Actually, the district I grew up in, Buffalo, uh, our family's known her for years because that was, uh, you know, because it was Buffalo, Western New York. Uh, so that'll be interesting. <laughs> well, we'll talk more about who Kathy Hochul is in upcoming episodes. We will be back with our amazing panel, Arun Chaudhary and Rep. Rab. All right, we are in the midst of our book club for March. If you're not a member of the book club, you are missing out because we are reading Mackenzie Wark's book, Capital is Dead, Is This Something Worse? And it's freaking me out a little bit. And I need to be able to talk about this book with our community. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to release a, a podcast with her soon. Uh, but the book club, as you know, Maybe, maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe you're new to this. We started the book club in 2021 and we have three different programs. You receive a book in the mail. Either you choose one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. And with that comes, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's been a process because of the mail service, I'm not going to lie, but we figured it out, I think. Um, but the books come in the mail and we read with each other. People submit questions at the show at gmail.com. And then when the author is available, we interview them and we ask some of those questions. We talk about the book, uh, some of the, the, you know, the backstory of the book, um, so it's a really, I don't know, it's its fun. It's definitely my challenge this year. <laughs> I did this a few years ago. I think I mentioned to folks that um, a few years ago, I read one book a week for a year. It was, I think, more than a few years ago at this point. Uh, and I wanted to do it again. And um, it's been a challenge. <laughs> I'll just say that. I can do one a month for sure, two a month for sure. Uh, four a month, you know, so we try to we try to diversify. We don't pick these like 700, 700 page books and then like, another like 350, we try to like mix it up with the size of the books um, throughout the month. But we have a great partnership with two publishers that you guys probably love and adore, Verso Books and Haymarket Books. They've been wonderful with us. Uh, they're distributing the books. It's their authors. So they're all left leaning. Um, we're trying to make it very holistic. Uh, we might even put in some fiction at some point. I gotta I gotta look at the list and, and see what we have. But we've got our books planned out for the next few months and uh it's very exciting so if you aren't already part of the book club join us at patreon.com slash the nomi key show there's three levels there it's all mixed up with the other patron levels i can't control it that's how it works but uh you can go there and check it out welcome back guys uh that's that this is that time where you gotta click like and subscribe and share on social media and tell everyone you know to subscribe because I signed up for this deal to do a Twitch game uh, when I hit certain metrics and I'm ready. I've been training for the Twitch Olympics. What game? I don't know. <laughs> don't, don't do that to me, Run. You caught me. If the kids are still playing Among Us, I do recommend it. It is Among Us. I'm, I'm kidding. Among Us. And then there's another one that we're going to do. Um, Arun Chowdhury, of course, is a political filmmaker. He is. Uh, he was the f formerly, this is so hard to say, formerly the first official White House videographer and worked as creative director for a guy named Bernie Sanders in 2016. You know, you know the jam. Are you in a closet? 
I'm in my, this is my new office. You're going to be seeing more of this. Uh, and that is, that's Gritty wearing a suit, actually. It's a puppet. Gritty from uh, Philadelphia, the, the, the sports thing? Yes. We had had in 2016 after, Bern I don't know, we had done something with a website that the NHL asked us to take down. So we did. Take down? Yeah, because it was somehow, we were raising money for things on it with it. Oh my gosh, they basically threatened yeah. to sue you. Great, 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 great when sports leagues do that. I don't, we're not a sports show, guys. Um, anyway, sports teams, leagues. Sports, show, folks. Yeah. sports sports entities. I don't know what that is. What's the, is it a league? All right. Okay. Anywho, um, I've been stewing on, on this for a while that two things. Number one, are progressive moments made by the economy? Meaning like, are we actually more progressive than we were? 10 years ago or 15 years ago? And is that a reflection of just people being in more uh, uncomfortable places in their lives, um, not having the support systems in place is number one. And number two, uh, I think like, because he was able to spend $1.9 trillion, the neoliberals don't have an argument anymore. No? Like, is there a path forward for them to say like, we can't afford it? I mean, it was, that was never really the issue. It was more, uh, you know, uh, of, of an ideology and almost sometimes it feels like more of a prove them wrong kind of uh, attitude towards some of these bigger things. But like, I, I don't, Obama had a very classic economic crisis, right? Biggest economic crash since the depression, blah, 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 mm -hmm. where taking sort of bold economic moves. I mean, I, I do think the pandemic is a little squishier. You know, there's fights about masks and it's vaccines and it's things. Both are obviously very bad for the economy and both people needed to come back faster. I think the only difference is there is a progressive infrastructure putting pressure on Biden. And so, you know, as Senator uh, Sanders says, if you don't ask for the whole loaf, you're just going to get crumbs. I think, you know, they asked for three quarters of the loaf and got a couple slices, mm -hmm. certainly not $15 an hour or anything, but this is a healthier, more robust bill uh, than the recovery bill was in 2009. And I think that that's why. I mean, yeah, there's political I mean, cost. But the progressive infrastructure, just to go back to, to the first point, which is, are we really, I mean, it, it, is it the circumstances that they've created because they're, because of austerity measures, because of Reaganism, because of neoliberalism, whatever, we can, we can run through the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, has that created the climate for a more progressive movement to, which has been built over, you know, rebuilt, I should say, um, over the last decade. And so that you have that infrastructure in place. Like, were we as progressive in 2008 as we are now? Or did we just not have, were we just as progressive, but without the institutional support that we have now to get people elected and put more pressure um, on lawmakers? We're in a different place. I mean, I keep sort of making it a story and less of a policy thing, so it doesn't work. But I think in 2008, we were still thinking that a failing system needed to be fixed. And I think a lot of folks in 2021 are thinking that there is a system that works perfectly well that needs wholesale changing. Hmm. Interesting. That's good. So where do we go from here? <laughs> well, we, we should invite Rep. Rab on to talk about- Hold on a second. Keep, keep going, keep going. <laughs> where, where do we go from there, Iran? I mean, look, the next steps are not to quote the neoliberal of all neoliberals, but not to let a crisis go to waste is to make, I think, temporary measures to fix this pandemic, permanent fixtures of American life. 
I think a little universal healthcare here, a little universal housing here. Hey, it's a pandemic. Hey, everybody needs a vaccine. Hey, shouldn't that be free? And we can kind of pressure test a lot of systems and make a lot of Americans who are otherwise nervous about these big projects be like, you know what? I think we should give this a chance. Um, hey, Rep. Rab. Rep. Rab represents the 200th, uh, 200th district of the Pennsylvania legislature. <laughs> this is out of my mouth, not correct. <laughs> um, so we're just talking about the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus plan that was just signed. 1.9 is also funny, right? It's Wait, like... Okay. Just it's sort of the 99 cent principle, yeah. but applied to trillions and you're like- Well, you don't want to make it two trillion because that would just be crazy. <laughs> yeah. Crazy talk. God yeah. forbid we pump money into our economy in any way. God. I mean, you think all the- someone, What I don't understand is like, why didn't some smart Democrat say like, let's round up all the billionaires who are for this plan and shove them on Fox Business and CNBC all day long to be like, guys, we need the growth. We don't have- we, if you people want money, they're not going to spend them on our goods, on our crap that we're shipping from China. Like whatever. Like they're not going to. I don't. I just never understood why that principle was never applied when clearly it exists. Um, rep, rep. Okay, so let's talk about the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus plan. What does it mean to you? Oh my goodness! Well, as a state lawmaker, uh, it means that it's bringing uh, bringing home money to the states and major municipalities like Philadelphia, which is the only city of the first class. And that's not meaning we're first class folks. It means that that is a, a term and statute that means that we are the biggest, essentially, the highest population of any other municipality in our Commonwealth. So it could be, bring upwards of $7.2 billion to Pennsylvania alone. Um, I believe uh, $5 billion could go to school districts could bypass the legislature and go to uh, local um, educational agencies, school districts, which is huge because Pennsylvania suffers from education apartheid. We have the biggest disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And the haves, the, the biggest predictor of uh, full funding or the most funding from the state to public uh, school districts is whiteness is whiteness. And it's all based so, on uh, uh, taxpayer dollars in terms of property taxes, is that why? Well, no, the property taxes are, are on the local level, on the state level, the state level. They're, do, they're using um, uh, reference points from 30, 40 years ago to determine what uh, adequate looks like. And that adequacy uh, algorithm negatively impacts equity. So to make sure that everyone gets their fair share, because not all school districts are created equal. So my school district is the largest school district in the state. It has over 200,000 students here in Philadelphia, but you have a school district that has 10,000. Mm. Well, what if the folks are in, and we also have more um, uh, uh, students who don't speak English as a first language. We have more folks um, who are receiving special education. Um, those are more, um, labor and uh, capital intensive things to provide versus an affluent district with not a lot of students. So it's not about everyone getting the same amount. It's about an equitable distribution of state money. And based on generations of inaction and apathy, um, that tax is being uh, weighed on uh, black and brown students and white people who send their kids to, to school districts where um, their kids are in the minority. So white people actually uh, are uh, disadvantaged too. 
along with white folks in rural areas where they're not getting their fair share. So this could be a game changer um, in many respects. And in terms of uh, broadband, in terms of uh, helping agriculture, um, public health, uh, it's, it's considerable. I just hope that my colleagues don't mess it up. So, so how, when you say mess it up, is it because you're, you're, you're curious how it's going to be, the allocation is going to be overseen? Yeah, like that so, reminds me of the the Obama stimulus. <laughs> I was going to say, right? I remember Florida gave all their train money back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so not, I'm not concerned about us not using the money, but the money that goes through the states, where the states can control within the limitations set by the feds on how it goes. So they could rob Peter to pay Paul. They could do all kinds of um, uh, things that are the least intelligent and the least strategic in terms of moving forward. So what a lot of folks do, and you know, I don't mean to be partisan, but it tends to be Republicans. They will find gimmicks, <laughs> okay. and not exclusively, not exclusively, of course, but they will find gimmicks to put uh, to fix holes in the budget without actually addressing the systemic issues that create those holes in the first place. So I'm hoping that this is not something that validates that type of uh, incompetence and recklessness. Hmm. Aran, like um, on this topic, I mean, let's talk about the Obama stimulus plan. Uh, what what mistakes were made then for, for folks who don't recall or aren't old enough to remember um, or just drink too much wine? <laughs> <laughs> or drank too much wine at that time, I should say. Well, look, obviously, you know, people bent over backwards to try to get bipartisan support on things when it's just, we're in the age of McConnell then, we're in the age of McConnell now. That is what unites these two, these two timeframes. And so it's just not worth it. And so everything that you lose, you just lose and you're just giving away. Um, but I will say, and actually for, from, from a different perspective, and politics and governing are both their games of scarcity. And if you could do everything you would, but one thing that was begun, but then definitely the foot got taken off the gas pedal on was um, the recovery act as its sort of own independent brand, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of like the new deal and mm -hmm. making sure that that logo was really present and prevalent on projects as they were taking place all over the country. Cause not everybody was going to watch a white house, you know, video right. we made of him landing in Cleveland and doing the thing. Uh, and so I, I think that more, more of that could have been employed. And I think as we talked about on this show once, more artists also could have been employed, not only because they were hurting as much as anyone else was, but because then you'd have somebody to tell the story. Right, exactly. It works together. It's interesting. And those stories have been told for generations and the legacy of those artists. I have a great, great aunt who, um, who was an artist employed in the WPA in the New Deal. And her work still exists because that's the beauty of artists. It's amazing. Right? You, what, you can't have a civilization. And one yep. day maybe you be a civilization, but we can't have a civilization without art. And so um, Arun makes a really good, um, really good point. These things uh, stand the test of time. In my district, um, I have one of the largest uh, park systems of any major city. In Philadelphia, oh, wow. Fairmount Park is bigger than Central Park, and it, it goes like an amoeba all across the city. And there are structures uh, where I hike that were built by regular folks during the New Deal in the Great Depression. They still awesome. stand. 
We need it's a better name time. for it than green pork. Maybe green ham is good, but there needs to be in these bills more green ham, like, you know, solar projects for sanitation, like, you know, things that actually work that we know that just need some cash. Now is the time. Exactly. So I, I want to pivot real quick because um, George Floyd, uh, of course, we all recall, uh, was murdered uh, last year and, and launched the most, uh, the largest uprising in, in American history. Um, Judge Cahill, who's overseeing this case against the, the uh, police officer, Derek Chauvin, uh, he reinstates the third degree murder charge against uh, Derek Chauvin, the officer. And, you know, Judge Cahill has been noted as being very fair-minded. I was listening to a whole like podcast about it yesterday. Um, I mean, like, what needs to happen? I mean, how, I, I don't want to say what needs to happen. It's, it's, we just know we're in this situation where you, you literally have the most high profile murder and, you know, good, he's, he's a fair judge, but there's got to be something just, just deeper, much, much, much deeper, um, symbolically deeper, where th there's got to be more. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm almost at a loss of words about this, but I, I know we have to touch on it. So I'll go to a rep rap first. So we have um, we have state laws, and those state laws um, put into effect uh, criminal offenses. And in Pennsylvania, we have 1,500 new criminal offenses over the past 50 years. 1,500. What? Um, so we are legislating our way uh, into. A, a carceral state that doesn't make any sense and doesn't keep us safer. And it, it, it's, uh, it impacts uh, BIPOC communities and the poor disproportionately. Mm -hmm. So that's not the case with regard to police officers because the percentage of police officers who are arrested, charged, can, uh, tried and convicted is ridiculously small. It's like watching a leprechaun ride a unicorn, right? That's, that's <laughs> how rare it is, right? But there's so many tools in the toolkit for prosecutors that normally are used to go after the folks who are disproportionately um, incarcerated, right? And, mm -hmm. and targeted and profiled. Um, and it's interesting that the, the time when this happens um, in Minnesota, in my state, a colleague, uh, Representative Dan Miller and I have just introduced a bill to uh, amend the felony murder uh, uh, offense in Pennsylvania. So a uh, second degree murder is if you are an accomplice, but in Pennsylvania, you could be accomplice if you didn't plan it, mm -hmm. if you didn't touch the gun, if you didn't even know there was a gun, if you were not any, wow. had nothing to do with it, but you were in the car. And I know men in cages for the rest of their lives because the sentence for second degree murder in Pennsylvania is life without mm -hmm. the chance of parole. It's the same as first degree. So you have a person who knowingly killed someone and someone who happened to be in the car or be around who had no connection to it whatsoever. And we have to look at the, we have to look at the tools that judges have in order to administer justice. And the reason that's important is the people who decide what those criminal offenses are on the state level are part-time elected officials in 46 states. And they represent small communities like New Hampshire. I think a state representative represents 14,000 people. 
Um, in California, it's like a quarter million or half a million. In mine, it's 63,000 people. What that means is the people who are watching need to know that these tiny little races that most people don't think about matter dramatically because they determine how the law is administered. They determine what the laws are and how it impacts the communities they care about most. And so these are conversations we need to have in between election cycles right. and knowing how to hold our electeds accountable. And this is precisely it, because the tools that the judge have are given to him by the state legislature. Not to mention the judges, uh, you know, many judges being elected uh, are, are partisan judges. So, yes. Aaron. I, I think this is a moment for Joe Biden to do like a really Joe Biden thing. You know, this is sort of his bread and butter, right? Is like sort of talking these issues and to have some kind of national address and set a moral tone. And you do need that kind of backing, you know, much like sort of an LBJ during civil rights, just somebody not even to say this is exactly how things should go down, but to be like, we have a moral problem and there needs to be a solution to this. And I, I mean, I, I, just, it, it, I think it has been a little disappointing to sort of not see the same amount of rhetoric happening now that there's not an election. Uh, like you know, like we're hinting at when there's not votes at stake is when people are watching what you do a little bit harder, and that's right now. Yep. Um, days in. I, I, I just 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 to find, finish everything because it's it's not comic relief. It's actually very dangerous. I want to talk about Tulsi Gabbard, and I know Run, you worked with her at one point. Um, mm -hmm. Can we just put up the the, the Tulsi Gabbard uh, cancel culture take? <laughs> So there we go. Tulsi Gabbard says to the Daily Wire, uh, you see the final expression of cancel culture is Islamist terrorist groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda. Okay, in Islam, excuse me. Uh, what is going on here? I mean, she's, she's on Dave Rubin. I, 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 you know, I really do want to ignore her, <laughs> but I, I think she's symbolic of something more dangerous that's happening um, on the left, whether or not they, it, it occurs um, it's significant enough. It's we have to pay attention to it, and we we you know, it's being facilitated by the right wing. Um, so I just run. I mean, I know you know her, and I know her too, and I am mm -hmm. deeply disappointed in her pivot. But there were some obvious perspectives that she had had previously that maybe we glazed over because she was part of the broader movement. But um, is this is is this as dangerous as as we might think it is, or no? I think it is really dangerous, uh, as dangerous as we might think it is. Um, I also think that what's happening with Tulsi Gabbard is more uh, a symptom of that than the problem with that. And that oftentimes you see people, again, we're talking about these big stories, uh, you know, narratives, and she's talking about a big narrative, right, right now too, like the kind of way people get radicalized and, and how it all happens. Yep. Um, but she also has a story to tell about her and her own career path. And I think as a lot of these doors have closed and in the ways in which they do close in, you know, uh, in our turbulent modern times can make people feel driven to do it. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of radicalization that this is where you see, you know, like a, a woman in suburban Chicago having a meltdown on camera, sort of being more a potent symbol of this moment than somebody in an obvious place, you know, like rural South, you know, former Confederacy having that same kind of episode, it doesn't, it isn't as meaningful. So I do think there is something about 
the way we see ourselves and, and we're being driven into having never been wrong and everything you've done up to this point has been right. And people just keep going farther and farther and finding acceptance to that. But it is dangerous because there is something that is awry kind of in the way that we talk about culture and in the way that we're dealing with it on the left. And uh, it gives rise to a lot of people just sort of using definitions of words in crazy ways and conflating really nutso things. And I think that's what we saw in this quote where we're seeing just a massive conflations of things to get you all the way from ISIS to like, you know, a Jordan Peterson problem on a college campus. No, it's exactly it. I mean, this is this. This is also a mechanism. It's a tool. It's a strategy, uh, ginned up by the right wing. I mean, Fox News for the last uh, like week has only been talking about Dr. Seuss. I had to go on and talk about Dr. Seuss. I would like totally almost hit my head again. I was on with another Republican who literally said we should be talking about education. I was like, that's my <laughs> like, line. We don't <laughs> have the same. I was like, same. I was like, I'm happy to debate. Want to debate education? And like, he wants charter schools. I was like, great. Let's talk about that instead. Like, they're even losing their minds. Like, they don't want to be part of it. But, but I mean, the, the truth is, is I think you're 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 onto something. Around like, people are feeling very. Um, some people are feeling very insecure in where they are in life. How their beliefs are 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 taken, and they go down these rabbit holes. Um, I just don't know if she was. What she was canceled from the DNC. She stepped down from the DNC from the fight, the non-important, you know, unimportant uh, vice chair position. I mean, where where was she canceled? She there are plenty of people who supported Bernie Sanders that have moved on and have beautiful careers. Um, so I don't know if I necessarily. I think she always had a little bit of there's something going on there. But rep rap. I mean, uh, radicalization. I mean, when you have very significant legitimate figures now echoing. Uh, talking points from from the rabid far right, there's danger to that. Yeah, so, and you all have the benefit of, of knowing her. I, I don't know anything other than what I see online. Um, and I find a lot of what she says deeply disturbing for some time. Um, so my expectations of her have been pretty low based on how I've been introduced to her, you know, remotely. But here's the here's the thing I think that matters uh, in a larger context, people who seek uh, public office, uh, elective office, there's a disproportionate percentage of us who are egomaniacs. I was just gonna say sociopaths. <laughs> there you go. So that would include sociopaths. That would include um, deeply insecure people. That would include wow. blindly ambitious people. And one of the reasons it took me um, into my mid forties to even consider running for public office was because I didn't want to be associated with politicians because I have such a dim view of them, whether they're on the so-called left or the right, because the ones that I know about are ones who are like, like from birth trying to ma map their way to hey, the white house. And I, <laughs> yeah, there are clear examples of folks, um, and I have no interest in dealing with folks like that. Unfortunately, I have to because now I'm an elected official, but we have to look at that irrespective of ideology is the temperament and the personality and the personal values of folks who say, you know what, if I'm a Democrat, so I'm supposed to have access in these ways. And if I can't use these structures for my, my benefit, I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to go off. And I'm going to say things that get me attention right. Right. and access in other places, which makes you question why 
they were of a certain party or of a certain um, orientation anyway, when it really is just a, a springboard for opportunism. And I don't know enough about her to say that about her, but that is my impression. Actually, similar to Kirsten Cinema too, in a, in a sense. You know, which way do you want to mm. sell out? Arun Chowdhury, Rep Rav. I love Thursdays. Thanks for joining us on Thursdays. It's always fun. Great to be here. All right. Uh, we've got some shout outs. I have a comment from, uh, I apologize, I don't have the name. Uh, there was a complaint that the media is not making a bigger deal about Fukushima's 10 year anniversary today. So yes, that is a huge deal. And I was listening to a podcast, uh, I believe yesterday, about Fukushima and how they were interviewing folks. And turns out it's it's a complete ghost town now. Fukushima barely exists. Um, horrifying, 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 horrifying uh, situation. And I, re I recall when Fukushima happened, like months later, they were in California discovering um, just, just debris from Fukushima. Um, it's horrifying. Anyways, I, yeah, I think that the media should be covering this more. And that's the problem is we live in this, this, this 24 second news cycle and uh, we don't dig in deep. And that's, you know, that's the economics of media. Uh, it's a business model of media. It's also what keeps us from, from solving the more existential, deeper issues. Uh, we're constantly, you know, crisis to crisis. Uh, the Trump administration is a perfect example, but then alternatively, you know, ratings are down everywhere right now uh, in the media because Trump isn't keeping us on the edge of our seat with a crisis and another crisis. This is the time we have to do the deeper work, but that also means that we have to engage continuously, even when we don't have a Trump. All right, some shout outs here. We have Alan Kennedy saying Stephanie Kelton and other MMT economists, even to the left of her, those uh, that value taxation even more and great ones to listen to on spending. We love Stephanie friend of the show, friend of mine. She's amazing. Kowalski from Nebraska. I'm once again in the land time forgot central Kansas, nothing against the people, but the Great Plains needs a second homestead act. Yes, we need people to run a functional society. And I wanna give a shout out to our friend, uh, friend of the show, great union leader, Sarah Nelson. It is her birthday. Go on Twitter, wish Sarah Nelson a happy birthday. Tell her we sent you there. I'm just kidding. Um, but just go go uh, wish her a happy birthday. She's one of our great leaders and we're just so grateful to you know, have her um, fighting for us out there. All right, Professor Hyvie K, we're also grateful to you. You're always in the chat, mixing it up. I think you went from YouTube to Twitch or Twitch to YouTube today. Uh, I'm impressed. That's a lot. Maybe, maybe when we hit 75K, maybe when we hit 75K, Harvey K and I can play Among Us on Twitter, Twitch, not, and not on Twitter. That's not where we do that. I'm not that dumb, guys. All right. Um, other shout outs we have here. Oh, oh Harvey K also says at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, he will be on uh, the conversation on TYT with Ben Dixon talking about Amazon workers. That is today at 5.30 Eastern. Go check that out. That's pretty soon, actually. It's like in 20 minutes, isn't it? No, it's in an hour. Um, all right, who else do we have here? Big thank you to Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. And of course, our YouTube moderators, Bob C, Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel. And as always on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler. Thank you for keeping the chat rooms troll free. Send us your addresses. I'm not getting them. The Nomi Key Show at gmail.com. I'm going to send out a bunch of swag. I want to send it to you. Thank you. <laughs>
<laughs> All right, we'll see you tomorrow for Fem Friday. We've got a good one tomorrow. Uh, that is 3 p.m. Eastern on Twitch and YouTube. And to our patrons, thanks for always checking us out. I know a few of you have been messaging me about how you listen to our show on your morning walk. I think that's pretty cool. All right, thank you everybody. Stay in solidarity. Bye.